And I invite you now to turn in God's Word with me to uh, Matthew chapter 22, page 1535. 1535 in your pew Bibles. We'll look at a couple of verses from Matthew 22, and then I'm going to ask you to flip over to Matthew chapter 23. So we are nearing uh, the end to a series on our core values. This morning, looking at the value of generosity. We have one more to go next Sunday. Pastor Young Kwong is going to lead us through the value of community. And uh, we have much to give thanks for. And you've heard all about that already this morning. So much of the theme has been on all that God has done for us. And generosity is about responding to Him. So let's, uh, let's take a look at his word, page 1535, Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so different groups seemed to be coming to Jesus and trying to trick him, trying to challenge him. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Then if you look down to chapter 23, and this is a section of Matthew that's known as the seven woes, and Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees, challenging them on a number of different issues. And if you look at me, or look with me at verse 23, this is where he begins to challenge them on their generosity. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, let's say you're putting your young daughter to bed tonight, and you tuck her in, and then you kneel beside the bed to sort of guide her through her evening prayers, and this is how she begins. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my brain to keep. Would you notice her choice of words there? Would you say something like, what are you doing? That's not how I taught you the prayer. It's not the phrase we learned. Of course you would. In the same way, Neil Plantinga remarks that the Pharisees would have noticed when Jesus recited to them this greatest commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Which is the greatest commandment? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus. And, And he responds by quoting from the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema was something that Hebrew families would have recited three times a day without fail, morning, noon, and night. 
Remember how the Waltons used to end every day by saying, Good night, John boy. Well, Hebrew families would have ended their day with the Shema, which goes like this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. With all your strength. That's the way they learned it. That's how they memorized it. And Jesus changed it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he says. Not strength, mind. You think the Pharisees would have noticed. Would they have noticed a change like that? Of course they would have noticed that. So what was Jesus doing here? What was he communicating to them? Well, he was telling them that loving God and loving your neighbor actually takes brain power. It takes thought. It takes discernment. It takes wisdom. It takes mind work. In other words, you cannot check your brain at the door if you want to actually love God and love your neighbors. And as far as generosity is a part of that loving God and loving neighbors, we also can't check our brains at the door when we're trying to think about what it means to be generous. To be generous takes brain power. It takes thought. <clears throat> it takes discernment. Okay? Now, I think there are, there are three things that Jesus is calling us here in this text to put a little more time and a little more thought into as we consider our generosity. We can do a little better job of discerning as we seek to be generous, okay? Let's look at those. The first one <clears throat> he is saying is that we have, to we have to learn to discern the difference between a camel and a gnat. Between a camel and a gnat. Because real generosity knows the difference between those two things. Um, when Lily was, uh, was still at our house, one of her favorite books was There Was an Old Woman Who Swallowed a Fly. I don't know if you know it. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. There was an old woman who swallowed a spider. It wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. Now, you probably don't want me to recite the whole thing to you, do you? I probably could. <clears throat> but it goes on and on like that until you get to the very last part. There was an old woman who swallowed a horse. She died, of course. Why am I reciting this nursery rhyme to you? Well, because even a three-year-old knows the difference between swallowing a fly and swallowing a horse, right? No three-year-old likes the idea of a fly kind of buzzing around in their tummy, right? But even a three-year-old knows <clears throat> that if you swallow a horse, something pretty much has to give. It's not going to buzz around in your tummy. It's not going to end well, right? What's Jesus saying to the Pharisees? He's saying even a three-year-old can tell the difference between a fly and a horse, between a gnat and a camel. You blind guides, 
you blind guides, you can't tell a camel from a gnat. If there are blind guides, can there also be blind followers? I suppose so. Do we know the difference between a camel and a gnat? If it's not obvious, friends, the Pharisees are kind of fanatical about their giving, just like they're fanatical about everything else. But they tithe on everything, right down to the spices in their spice racks. They overlook nothing, not one little gnat. In fact, they go well beyond the law when it comes to their generosity. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy command an agricultural tithe on the things that we grow in our fields, right? Like corn and wine and oil, a tithe on the harvest. But the Pharisees are tithing on the very things that they grow in their window boxes. The dill, the spices in their window boxes. And instead of being pleased about this, Jesus is upset. It turns his stomach. Why? Because they cannot tell the difference between a gnat and a camel. You see, the gnat is the careful diligence that they use in, in putting together their tithe to bring to their God. What's the camel? The justice and the mercy and the faith that their God demands. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What Jesus is angry about is that the Pharisees major in minors. They are scrupulous in minor matters, but derelict in major ones. They're scrupulous in setting aside their ties for the temple, but at the very same time, they are, they're going out and they're cheating in their businesses. They're violent in their homes. They're indifferent to the poor. They're impatient with the difficult. And they're unbelieving and untrusting in the promises of their God. The little things God desires consume them, while the substantial things get ignored. And friends, it's so easy for us to fall into exa the exact same patterns. It's so easy. For instance, whenever the topic of, of giving or generosity comes up in the church these days, the very first question I get is often, how much? In other words, how much must I give? What's the expected minimum requirement for my generosity? What is it, 2%? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Just, just lay it out. Hit me with it. What does God require? Most people assume that God demands 10% from us, right? A tithe. We even make jokes about this sort of thing. A man goes to God and he says, 10%, Lord, that's an awful lot. On my salary, that's $10,000 a year. I mean, can't we talk about this? Can't we do anything to lower this a bit? 
And God responds by saying, well, I can cut your salary in half. That'll do it. I remember a, a time when my sons were young and we were paying the bill at a restaurant and they got inquisitive and they were asking about the tip. What kind of tip are you supposed to leave? And we said, well, generally people leave between 15 and 20%. And, and they responded, that's more than God gets. <laughs> and we get so tied up in numbers, don't we? So tied up in numbers. What many of us don't realize about bringing the tithe is that in Israel, in the Old Testament, there were actually three tithes that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Three tithes that people were supposed to bring. There was one tithe to support the work of the priests and the Levites in the temple. There was another tithe, tithe that was to be given um, to support all of the festivals that were to take place all year long among the people. And then there was a third tithe that was to be given every three years to take care of the poor. And so when we talk about bringing the whole tithe into God, we're talking about at least 23 and a third percent. That's where we start. And yet, for some folks, just having a number, even a really, really large number, that's more palatable than what we hear from Paul in the New Testament. Things like, well, God loves a cheerful giver. Or set aside a sum of money each week in giving with your income. And for some of us, that's just, that's, that's far too vague. That's too general. We want a hard and fast number. Lord, give me a hard and fast number. I don't care what it is, but I want to know the number of what it costs to keep God happy. But all of this stuff is what Jesus refers to as straining out a gnat. The focus shouldn't be on where that giving bar is, where the average minimum requirement is. The focus should be on the camel, according to Jesus. The focus should be on the needs, right? The focus should be on all of the things that we talked about last week when we talked about justice and service and all of our brain power, all of our minds, our, our thinking, our intellect should not be focused on trying to determine exactly what percent that tithe is, but it should be focusing on things like, well, who's actually making real progress in turning former formerly incarcerated people into members of the community again so that they have no desire to go out and commit more crimes. Our thought process should be in how do we get a young family from Haiti to safety? And what can we do about places like Haiti so that people can live there safely again? How do we bring the gospel of Christ to people in places in the world where all they know is darkness? How do we bring that light? Those are the kinds of things that we're supposed to be focused on. Those are the kinds of things that we're supposed to be putting our brain power into. It's not just a matter of dropping money in the plate and thinking, well, that's that. I've done my part. I'm being generous. And what Jesus is saying is that true love, true love of God 
and true love of our neighbor, it changes our focus and it challenges our minds. The focus of our giving isn't on our spices anymore. It's not on the spice rack, but it's rather focusing now on how we can be better at bringing justice and God's mercy to the world and being faithful to him. And the giving, he says, the giving is going to flow from that. The giving will follow our pursuit of justice and mercy and faithfulness. If those are the things we're focused on, we won't worry about the spices anymore. In fact, we're going to probably give far more because it's just going to flow out when we see the needs. You heard what Sandy said this morning. We gave a challenge a couple of weeks ago, probably the easiest challenge you've ever received, right? Give some money away. And what we found out is that that's actually a pretty hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do because once you begin to see the needs, like she said, you begin to realize it's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's more. And there's more. And that's what Jesus says. Of course there's more. Quit worrying about the spices. Start looking at the more and the more. And what's going to happen is you will find yourself relying on God and what he can do far more than you ever have in the past. If all you've ever been concerned about is your own resources, all you have to do is start looking at the needs, thinking about what you can do in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will subject yourself to relying more and more on the resources of God and what he can do through all of God's people. Jesus says, we've got it all backwards. Worry about the camel, not the gnat. You want to see how big your God really is? Look at the camel. Friends, our God is not a God of easy answers. And I think we've come to assume somehow that he is, that everything in our spiritual lives ought to be easy. There ought to be an easy answer to everything. That's not our God. What's harder? Is it harder to figure out what 10% of your actual income is right down to the spices? Or is it harder to face a world that has been devastated by sin and to begin to sift through all of it looking for that one thread that you can begin to pull on and pull on until all of that ugliness is unraveled. That's the harder thing. But that's what God is pointing us to. It's interesting. Jesus says here, you have neglected the more important matters. You have neglected the more important matters. That's a very nice translation. What he really is saying here is you have looked into the face of all of the important matters. You have weighed them, and then you have turned away from them. And you have turned in favor of counting your little spices. Why? Because it's the easier thing. You turned your back on the things that are harder, and you have not trusted your God that he will help you even in the hard things in life. Friends, is that what we really want to hear from Jesus someday? 
that you can't tell the difference or you couldn't tell the difference between a gnat and a camel, between a fly and a horse. None of us wants to hear that. Generosity, true generosity knows the difference. All right, the second thing we have to do with our minds or, or learn to discern in our minds is that God is really the true giver. And generosity is merely a matter of saying thanks. It's a matter of mimicking God. Um, in most religions in the world, giving is a transactional thing. All right? People give to coerce the deity into doing whatever they want that deity to, to do for them. And if the deity doesn't respond the way that they want to, they just go off and find another god. Okay, it's a transactional sort of thing. Yahweh makes it very clear throughout Scripture that he is not that kind of god. When Jesus brings up the important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, He's pointing us, like we said earlier, to that famous text in Micah 6, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you remember, though, what, what leads up to that verse, what comes before that? Well, it's actually the worshiper kind of asking that question. What is it that the Lord requires of me? And if you notice the answers, they're sort of, they're sort of come in an escalation. What does the Lord require of me? Should I bring to him year-old calves? In other words, prime beef. We're thinking quality here. Well, if that's not good enough, should I bring thousands of rams? We're into quantity now. Well, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? And if that's not enough, shall I bring the firstborn, my firstborn, my firstborn child? You see, and it's all this idea of what is it going to take to get God to do what I want him to do? What will it take to satisfy him so that he will do what I want him to do? Now, in cases like this in the pagan countries, right, the gods were not considered to be moral. They weren't interested in morality. They were just interested in what you were going to bring them, what you were going to give them. And so thieves and robbers, right, they could talk about what they were going to bring to their temple, what they were going to bring to their god, so that their God would actually bless their activity, their thieving. It's funny, I just was flipping channels last night, and, and the first thing I saw was some movie, and there was an argument between two guys in a car, I think they were bank robbers, and one of them was putting uh, the image of St. Christopher on the dashboard because St. Christopher was the patron uh, saint of safe travel or something, and he wanted to make sure that they could make a safe getaway from their bank robbery. And that's how people used to think of what we give to the gods. We give to the gods to convince them to be on our side. And what Jesus wants us to know is that God, our God, the God of Israel, is vastly different. He is a holy God. He actually cares about what's right and what's wrong. He actually cares about people, and not just any people. He cares about the last and the least of these those kinds of people. And therefore, what he requires from all of us, from all of his people, is justice and mercy and humility. 
What's going on in our text is that Jesus seems to sense that, that pagan attitude right here in the attitude of the Pharisees. They're counting out their spices. They're trying to get God on their side, no matter what side they happen to be on. And Jesus himself is, is repulsed by that. Who is Jesus? He's the deity. He's the Son of God. And he is not flattered by this whatsoever. He's not moved by their gifts. And he reminds them that God, their God, the God of Israel, is interested only in holiness, not tithes. And he's calling them to think hard and long about what kind of God their God really is. What kind of God has he revealed himself to be? And we find out, right? When Jesus brings up Micah 6 and what the Lord requires of us, most of us forget that the passage begins with these words. My people, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That's what Jesus wants us to remember always, that God is the first giver. God is the first giver. God cares about his people and he acted. He gave for them. And therefore, all of our generosity is never going to earn anything with God. All of our generosity, all it can do is say, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Our generosity is simply mimicking what our God has done for us. And by our generosity, we show the world how generous a God we really have because we mimic him in what we do. And that's why Paul says things like, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, so generously and so cheerfully. Why? Because our giving is a testimony to how generously and caringly and cheerfully God has given to us. When Paul wraps up his discussion in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 with um, challenging the church in Corinth to give to the poor, In Jerusalem, he ends with these words. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's what it's all about. Thanks be to God for being a God who is holy and a God who cares for his people, who cares and who gives. Okay, we have to learn to discern the God that we have. And finally, we're almost done. The third thing Jesus wants us to put some thought into is where our hearts are. Where our hearts are. Let's face it, while the Pharisees were counting out their spices to determine, you know, what it would take to keep God on their side, at the very same time, they didn't want to overpay. I mean, if they could please God, if they could get him on their side for 23 and a third percent, then why pay 25 percent? That's part of why they were counting out their spices. They didn't want to go over. You might say they were reluctant givers. Jesus had something to say about that too earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Same Gospel. He says this. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We all heard the words. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is, if you want to know where your heart is, follow the money, right? Watch where your treasure flows. 
You want to know where your heart is? Watch where your treasure flows. All of this week, you probably, like me, have been hearing all about the Super Bowl, right? People are spending like crazy on their parties. Um, You know what else I've been hearing people are spending on over and over is betting, gambling. And not just on who's going to win the game, right? But betting on all sorts of other things that are called props. And they're basically searching for more things that we can get on, searching for more things to make this Super Bowl even more interesting, even more fun for us. And so they're betting on things like this. Um, The first coin flip, is it going to be heads or tails? How many players are actually going to attempt a pass? Um, How many two-point conversions will be attempted? How many two-point conversions will succeed? There are even cross-sport betting going on. So there would be a bet like, um, who's going to score the most points? LeBron James against the Golden State Warriors on Saturday night? Or um, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs on, on Sunday in the Super Bowl? So all of these sorts of bets, anything you can imagine. Think of Jesus' words. If you want to know where people's hearts are, if you want to know where your hearts are, You follow the money. You watch where your treasure flows. What is it that Jesus wants our hearts to be set on? It's really not that complicated, is it? He says it over and over. I want you to love God, and I want you to love your neighbors. Is that where your treasure flows? Is that where your heart is? If not, what will it take to change the direction of where our treasure goes? What will it take to set our hearts on God and people? Well, it simply takes discerning Jesus' heart. It's always the answer of Scripture. You have to discern Jesus' heart. If you want to know where your heart is, you watch where your treasure flows. If you use that same metric, the very metric that Jesus gave us to gauge where our hearts are, if you use that same metric on Jesus to see what his heart is set on, what do you find? Where was Jesus' treasure? Where did it flow? It flowed toward people. It flowed toward us. Jesus loved us, you and me. And his treasure flowed freely to us, didn't it? He gave up everything that he had in heaven for something that he treasured even more. He gave up his very life for his true treasure. And that was us. And it's only when you let your mind grapple with that, it's only then that he will capture your heart. And your treasure will begin to flow freely 
and consistently and lavishly and cheerfully and thoughtfully toward him and toward the things and the people that he loves. Learn how to discern the difference between a gnat and a camel. Let's pray. Lord, teach us true generosity. Remind us again and again of your heart for us. Remind us again and again that truly, as unthinkable as it is, we are your treasure, the treasure of the living God, and you have given everything for us. Capture our hearts once again. Inspire in us a true generosity like yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.